and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Ducks Deluxe and Coast to Coast. And that's because today we're focusing on pub rock, and we've got the author of Howling Wind, John Blaney here, who's got a fabulous book on pub rock and the birth of New Wave. Uh, a huge welcome, John. Hello, how are you doing? So it's a great topic and a really interesting time in music. So it seems to be an obvious topic for a book, but actually there hasn't been that many definitive books on the genre. Is that the aim that you had when you started off writing it? There's only one other book that I'm aware of, which is by Will Birch, who of course was in the Curves of Flyers and was actually there, although um, some people would dispute <laughs> some of his assertions, but we won't go down that rabbit hole. But uh, yeah, his was the first book. I veered off slightly because what I wanted to do was look at pub rock as a bridge between rock, in inverted commas, and new wave, in inverted commas, because lots of these people who were in these pub rock bands in the early 70s were total failures, really. They didn't have any chart success. They sustained a career for four or five years, which is pretty good going, really. I mean, that, yeah. that is success, but they didn't have any chart success. They didn't make any real money. And then punk comes along, and then there's this thing called New Wave, which there are all these bands that don't really fit into this box called punk. And you, when you start looking back, you go, hang on a minute. There's Ian Jury was in this band called Kilburn and the High Roads, and he'd yeah. been around for ages. And Nick Lowe had been in a band called Brinsley Schwartz. And the drummer from Elvis Costello had been in a band called Chibi Willie and the Red Hot Peppers. And half of the rumour were in uh, Ducks Deluxe and the other half were in Brinsley Schwartz. Oh, and then half of the motors were in Ducks Deluxe. And you got to go, all these people who had quite good careers and had hit singles in the late 70s all came out of this pub rock scene and played an important part in, uh, you know, the whole new way thing. And Dr. Feelgood. Dr. Feelgood influenced the jam, Paul Weller, and uh, a whole load of other bands. You know, Blondie were, were re really influenced by the first Dr. Feelgood album. So they're all really important. So we opened up with Ducks Deluxe and Coast to Coast. Maybe that's one of the themes of this podcast is a lot of live tracks. And, and that's one of the things that create great energy of that scene. So Ducks Deluxe, there's a few ties to Brinsley Swartz, certainly how they formed. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Martin Belmont was a roadie for Brinsley Schwartz. He also uh, had a guitar made for him by Ian Gom. They must have had some parts sitting around, and Ian Gom fashioned this guitar. It's called the Gomcaster. And uh, Ducks Deluxe basically came out of a squat, very much like the, the 101ers. I can't remember exactly how they came together, but certainly Martin Belmont, Sean Tyler, possibly sharing a squat and Martin Belmont had been roguing for the Brinsleys so there's that connection because of that connection uh, a couple of members of the Brinsleys actually played on um, Ducks Deluxe recordings as well and there's also a, a connection with Rockfield which I think we should mention Rockfield uh, it's a really important studio everyone knows it because Oasis recorded there and Queen recorded there but it was really important because it was inexpensive and lots of bands like Ducks Deluxe and Brindley Schwartz could go there and, you know, you could spend a couple of weeks there and get an album done. That's the reason it was set up. It was set up by Charles and Kingsley Ward as an alternative to those London studios. Because the London studios were very good, but they're also really expensive, you know. 
so they they thought wow we've got this farm and we've got some outbuildings and we've got you know an interesting recording and a couple of tape recorders so stick, stick them in this originally it was in the potato lot and that's where dave edmonds did some recording so rockville studios played a really important part in you know allowing these bands to record there and it's obviously still going ducks deluxe signed to rca so a big label but it didn't last long. Was that just because the label signed them and then a few years later dropped them? Well, they did two albums with uh, RCA and a couple of singles, and they just never got kind of the momentum. They were a really good live band. I think it was that live recording shows, really tight and really powerful. But you need to have hit singles and you need to sell records. And RCA gave it a shot and you know they had two albums with RCA. And I think by the time the second album came out, which was probably late 75, which Ducks Deluxe realised that there was change in the air. And, you know, they, no matter what they did, they weren't going to make it. So I think they just decided to call it a day. They did one final EP with a small French label, Sky Dog Records. And then uh, called it quits. So it was just it's just luck or lack of luck. You know, you need the airplay. You have to. Another thing that you have to important to remember is back in early to mid seventies, there weren't as many independent radio stations as we have now. I mean, there was a few BBC stations and probably Radio London and maybe Piccadilly and things like that. But they probably weren't going to play Ducks Deluxe. In fact, I remember we used to listen to Radio London on a Sunday. And Stuart Coleman, who was a, a record producer, used to have a, a, a show on there. And that was the only place you'd get to hear all this kind of stuff. You know, that, well, that was in the late 70s. And he'd get all these bands in, you know, and interview them. And, and uh, no internet in those days, no Facebook or TikTok or any of that. Had the gig guide, you know, the Sunday gig guide. And you'd go through and build these, you know, like the Red Cow and uh, Greyhound and all those places. And that's where you get all your information. Because it was either that or the music papers, that was it. Yeah, just to track this stuff down. I mean, we mentioned Brinsley Swartz briefly and the connections between all these. Maybe it's worth mentioning that the band, and it's certainly its first guys, were Kippington Lodge, who, I mean, I love their early singles, but and I've had Mark Wirtz on, but really, certainly reading your book, it's very clear how not really involved in a lot of that early material on Parlophone. So by around 1970, Outside of those restrictions, they start finding their own sound and this Ian Gom starts coming on. Yeah, so Kippington Lodge, I think, finished about 1969. And as you say, they didn't really have any control whatsoever over their recordings. They were on the verge of breaking up. Billy Rankin saw an advert in a music paper. Bands wanted. And it was uh, a company in London who were looking to finance a film film about bridge that was going to start omar sharif and they needed the card game yeah the card game bridge yeah yeah we're gonna make this document sounds exciting (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna make this big documentary about bridge i think it was because i think omar sharif was quite the bridge player and they needed some money to finance this film and they thought well the record industry is awash with money we'll get a band and we'll sign them to a label for loads of money and we'll use some of that money to help make the film that's how Brinsley Shorts got together with Dave Robinson, who goes on to play right, or yeah. part later on. He became their manager. He came up with this idea to <laughs> break the band by flying a plane load of journalists to New York 
to see the Brinsleys at the Fillmore East supporting Van Morrison, I think it was. And it all went horribly wrong. And <laughs> the journalists all turned up late and drunk. And the Brinsleys were having trouble getting into America because Nick Lowe had a conviction for cannabis possession, you know. And it just went all horribly wrong. And the new newspapers recovered it, covered it basically saying, this is the biggest type of all time. <laughs> <laughs> but it did kind of work for the band because I, I spoke to most of the band and they said, you know, it was a bit embarrassing, but because they were in the papers and people were writing about them, they moved another step up the ladder. Yeah. They had a record contract. They were signed to United Artists. They had a record out. They were being written about in the music papers. And they went from being like a, I don't know, 75 pounds a night band playing you know, in tiny little clubs and things to being like a 250 pounds a night band playing in, you know, bigger venues and things like that. So it, it did kind of work in their favour. And it also worked in their favour in as much as they discovered that they really didn't like being famous. So then they start to turn their back on all this, you know, fame and uh, being in the spotlight and, you know, and working your way up the, the ladder and, you know, going to play bigger venues and going on bigger tours and spending more money on your, on your albums. And they, they went the opposite way and they, they went back into playing into the back rooms of pubs, which is pretty unheard of at the time. For a band who was, you know, signed to a major label to go and play, you know, uh, the Tally Ho, in uh, Kentish Town, where it's not there anymore, it's gone. And then subsequently, a lot of other bands who follow on, they, you know, they kind of follow their lead. They say, no, we're not going to play the music business game. We're going to do it our way. And that's punk and new way, all that thing, stiff records. You know, we're going to be a record label, but we're not going to be like any of the big record labels. <laughs> and you've chosen Home In My Hand from Please Don't Ever Change. And I, I think in the book you also say that that album typifies pub rock in that it's got a mix of original tracks and covers? Yeah, I think it's it's one of their, their better albums. I mean, Silver Pistol's a good album, but um, Please Don't Ever Change, it really is. It's a kind of, uh, it does reek of stale tobacco and <laughs> Watney's Red Barrel. It's a really strange album. It's got kind of Bob Marley songs on it and uh, and it's got a live track and original material and you, you could imagine if they ever they probably didn't but you know if you if you went to see them and it was on the merch table you're going oh yeah i'll buy that as a souvenir of the evening because it is just quintessential Brindley schwartz pub rock album in a way and home in my hand is great you know i think that was recorded at the um open anchor all the band members after the demise of Brindley sorts in their own way, went on to have successful careers in, in music. All of them. I mean, Nick Lowe's probably got the highest profile. He had, you know, hit singles with Cruel to Be Kind, Cracking Up, that was a hit single. Um, obviously very well known because of Rockpile, Dave Edmonds, produced lots of people, Pretenders, Graham Parker, Elvis Costello. A little known fact that Ian Gomm, is the only Stiff Records recording artist to have a top 10 single in America. No one else on the label had a top 10 single in America, not even Ian Jury. Ian Gone produced the first Stranglers demo, which uh, a lot of people don't know. So, you know, there's another kind of new wave connection. Brinsley Schwartz and Bob Andrews both went on to co-found The Rumour, who, uh, you know, became Graham Parker and The Rumour. 
and also recorded uh, a couple of uh, albums as a band for Stiff Records. Billy Rankin, I think he did some session work, I think. I think he might have even played with Ducks Deluxe for a while. So, yeah, they all went on and, you know, did very well for after the, the band split up.
So next we've got Kilburn and the High Roads and Rough Kids. You alluded to this earlier, mm. Ian Jury's first band that was signed to a label, I believe. Kilburn and the High Roads actually go back to about 1970, I think. But we didn't really start getting it together until, I think, 73. Uh, and then they, they became one of these bands that gigged everywhere and were really popular. Uh, and there's a Charlie Gillick connection. I think he managed them for a while and he got them a deal originally with Warner Brothers for a Warner Brothers subsidiary. And they went off and they recorded an album and then Warner Brothers pulled the plug on it. Nothing happened. So then they got another deal with Pi Records and they were on Pi's subsidiary Dawn and they recorded the album all over again, mainly at Apple Studios. There's the Beatles connection there. They recorded at Apple Studios. And uh, it came out and did nothing, <laughs> did absolutely nothing. And uh, they released Rough Kids as a single. And uh, if you listen to it, I mean, that was, what, 74, probably 75, something like that. It really does. It prefigures all that punk stuff. It was later recorded by Reckless Eric on his debut album. And I think it was produced by Ian Jury. And uh, he's just got that attitude. It's just, it's, I think it's produced by Chris Thomas. You could say it's a proto-punk song. It's, it's probably more punk than anything that Ian Jury ever did with the Blockheads. Because the Blockheads were really kind of a rock-funk band. Rough kids play rough games and kick tin cans.
Now we've got Chili Willy and the Red Hot Peppers Fire on the Mountain here. And um, Martin Storm was involved with that. And he had a lineage that went to late days of the action of Mighty Baby, didn't he? That's right, yeah. So Martin Stone was in Mighty Baby. And Mighty Baby kind of emerged from the ashes of the action. And I think Martin Stone was in the action at the very end. Yeah. It certainly wasn't what you would call uh, the action at their peak when they were doing all those fantastic singles with George yeah. Martin. Uh, but then, you know, Mighty Baby arose out of the ashes of that. Uh, and they did a couple of really good albums, if you ever get to hear either of the Mighty Baby albums. They're fantastic. And also there's a connection with Ace ah. as well, because um, a couple of people from um, the uh, the action uh, ended up forming Ace as well with Paul Carrot. And Paul Carrot goes on to work with Nick Lowe. You know, it's, it's all, it all sounds very incestuous. Mighty Baby ended. Martin Stone was looking around for something to do. And... Uh, Got back in touch with uh, Phil Litham, who was working with the residents. <laughs> He'd been working with them in America. And uh, they got together, recorded an album, which is very country. Uh, the first Chili Willie album is basically just the two of them. And again, I think there's a couple of people from Brindsay Schwartz who were drafted into our keyboards and things. And uh, the second album is really Chili Willie at their peak. Uh, and it's got uh, Pete Thomas on drums who obviously went on to become drummer with Elvis Costello, and it's still Elvis Costello's drummer, and the bass player was Paul Baseman Riley, who went on to do work with a lot of other... I think he became a producer and did all sorts of things. And um, Fire on the Mountains, uh, yeah, it's a great live track again. You know, you can imagine being in a, you know, uh, the Half Moon Putney. It's a feel-good track, you know. You know, it's, it just makes... It's the perfect way. Good night, folks, you know. <laughs> We hope you've enjoyed yourselves. See you next time. And off they go.
we move on with uh, eggs over easy i'm going to put a bar in the back of my car and drive myself to drink so this was a an american duo but there's a Chaz chandler connection in getting them over like that what happened with hendrix yeah that's right so eggs over easy were an american were they a duo or a three-piece i can't remember now anyway eggs over easy they were a bunch of americans somehow they caught the ear of Chaz chandler who's um obviously been working with Jimi hendrix uh, he brought them over the, to the UK to record an album. John Steele? The Animals drummer. The Animals drummer. Because he was working with Chaz Chandler, you see. John Steele was working uh, as a, a Man Friday type of thing with Chaz Chandler. And they were re- recording Eggs Over Easy in the studio. And the, the drummer they were working with was just hopeless. He couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't swing. Chaz went, John, get in there. And one take, and they had it, and it swang, and it was fantastic. So John Steele then ends up doing quite a lot of work with uh, Eggs Over Easy, joins the band, plays with them live, plays on their album. Again, they're another one of these bands, you know, messed about by the record company. The record company spent probably, you know, it must have spent a hell of a lot, man. We flew them over to the, the UK, put them in a big studio, spent loads of money recording the album, and then shelved it. They kind of head back to America nothing really happens and the single I'm going to put a bar in the back of my car and drive myself to drink came out in about 75 I think it was on a small independent label and there's um, was actually re-recorded by another band called the Moonlighters who I believe have members of Eggs Over Easy Austin Delone I think is also in the Moonlighters and surprise surprise it was produced by Nick Lowe so, <laughs> <laughs> I thought we'd have this track because, you know, it's a great title. It's like one of those country and western titles, rocking up tempo number, which would get the audience going. Well, I was cruising down the road about 75 when this boy's man put right him next to me. i 
So, Curse uh, Flyers and uh, Cross Country from their album Chocks Away. So, they're a, a South End group? Yeah, Curse Flyers are uh, from South End. I've chosen um, Cross Country. Again, it's a good up tempo song. It was written by Mickey Jupp. Ah. He also features in the book. He was from South End and he was in a band called Legends uh, in the early 70s who had a drummer who actually went on to work with Mark Boland in T-Rex. He became T-Rex's drummer. And Mickey Jupp, obviously, there's a connection with Stiff Records. He called it, I think it was his first solo album. Stiff Records was on the second Stiff tour. He's a really awkward person. <laughs> he's, a, he's a contrarian, really, Mickey Jupp. God bless him. Uh, and a really good songwriter. Um, and, of course, Curves of Flies is yet another connection because a guitarist with the Curves of Flies went off and became the guitarist with Eddie and the Hot Rods. It all links together. You can imagine some huge family tree. It'd have to be a massive family tree. Uh, yeah, so there's a hot... And the Eddie and the Hot Rods were uh, from, kind of from that neck of the woods. I recall seeing some sort of documentary or profile of Curse of Flyers that was made around that time, possibly by the BBC. So there must have been quite a a push and, and buzz for the group for a time. Yeah, that's right. They were uh, featured on a BBC documentary. I think maybe the BBC were doing a few of these, uh, like uh, rock and roll documentaries. There's a really good one of Gene Vincent from a few years earlier, which is actually really sad because he was really down on his luck. But yeah, the Curzel Flyers were featured. Obviously, they were on um, Jonathan King's record label. UK. UK, uh, who also had 10cc. And there was quite a big push from, uh, I think it was Polydor, who were distributing UK records at the time. So they were getting a bit of a push, BBC making documentaries about them, but they didn't have any hit singles whilst they were uh, UK. They actually then signed to CBS. And I believe um, Little Does She Know, which was the big hit, I think that was produced by Mike Bat. Mike Bat, yeah. Mike Bat, yeah. <laughs> you just wouldn't put the two together naturally. You wouldn't think, but it worked. Well, no, but the thing is, um, I also I quite like Steel Eye Span. Yeah. Mike Bat produced All Around My Hat. You know, he, <laughs> he just gets kind of lumbered with this womble thing. But a man of so many talents. Unbelievable, you know, and produced all these great records and really diverse records. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they, uh, the Curves of Flyers didn't have any hits when they were with uh, Jonathan King. But they did when they signed to CBS. Unfortunately, it was all rather short-lived. I think they did maybe one or two albums for uh, CBS. But, you know, a lot of these bands kind of get caught in that punk thing. Punk starts to come along. Mm. Taylor in the 75, it really hits its stride in 76. And um, the writing's on the wall for a lot of these bands. And, And the savvy ones, the clever ones, they reinvent themselves. They reinvent themselves. As you know, in the records, as in the case of the Curls and Flyers, or you know, uh, Rock Pile, as in the case of Nick Lowe, punk did it was a new broom punk, you know, and I think a lot of these bands suffered because of that. They were seen as being the old guard, and they weren't that old, they were probably in their mid 20s, weren't they? A lot of these people.
We've got Graham Parker in the room, who we've referred to earlier, and Heat Treatment, yeah. another live track from uh, this time from the um, the Parkerilla. Again, the tentacles here, especially with the rumour, dovetails with so many musicians that we've either covered or, or will cover. Yeah, well, basically, 75-ish, both Duck Stilats and Brindy Schwartz. They called it quits. And Martin Belmont from Ducks Deluxe was actually working behind the bar at the uh, the Hope and Anchor. And the Hope and Anchor was being run by Dave Robinson, who turned the basement into a tiny little live venue. And upstairs on the first floor, he also had a recording studio. And he recorded Graham Parker, recorded some Graham Parker demos there. And around the same time, Martin Belmont brings his Schwartz, they're trying to get a band together. And um, there's another band called Bon Tom Roulet who come into the picture. Uh, and they all, all these musicians who were kind of hanging around the Hope and Anchor, possibly because Dave Robinson was there. And, you know, you're looking for gigs, you're looking for work. They begin to coalesce and they, they become the rumour. And I think it was Dave Robinson who had the bright idea of putting Graham Parker together with the rumour 
because they were such a fantastic band. Bob Andrews on keyboards, Bruce Schwartz on guitar, Martin Belmont, fantastic guitar player, Steve Goulding, the drummer, Andrew Bodner on bass, who also went on to work with Nick Lowe and played on I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass. I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass is pretty much the rumour. Mm. It's uh, Bob Andrews on keyboards, Andrew Bodner on bass. I'm not sure who the drummer is on that. Could be the rumour drummer. But, uh, and again, another great live track, Grand Park and the Rumour. They were fantastic, as a, just as a live band. If you'd have seen those in the early days in a small club somewhere, and then, of course, they developed and had a horn section and things like that. Graham Parker's a fantastic songwriter. He's kind of got that, a little bit of Bob Dylan, a little bit of Van Morrison. He's borrowing from all these, what we now, you know, call classic rock musicians, working with the rumour. The rumour could pull it off. And they could come up with these great arrangements and uh, really enhance his songs. For a couple of years, Graham Parker and the Rumour were one of the biggest names in music. Oh, yeah. I mean, they definitely, you know, I think most bands have like an 18-month golden period, don't they? And Graham Parker and the Rumour certainly had that. Maybe they had, you know, two and a half years. I mean, they, they did tours of America, big tours over here, playing, you know, your Hammersmith Odeons and uh, all those kind of places. They had hits, a couple of hit records, Pink Park EP, that was a big hit, appearing on television, Top of the Pops. Unfortunately, it didn't last. I think it could get to about 1980, and I think they, yeah. the band started to fragment, which is a shame. But, I mean, two years, 18 months, two years, they were at the top.
Now we have Dr. Feelgood and all through the city and famously from Canvey Island. From Canvey Island, yes. Dr. Feelgood, they probably are the most important bands to emerge from that pub rock scene. They're certainly one of the most influential. The only band from the pub rock scene to have a number one album. It was a live album. They had several hit singles, even when, you know, Wilco left late 70s. But they, they continued to have hit singles after he left. Milk and Alcohol, Down to the Doctors, As Long as the Price is Right. And obviously from the South End area, like the Curls of Flowers, like Eddie and the Hot Rods. And a lot of people have come out and said how influential Wilco Johnson was. Paul Weller was a big fan. That kind of uh, spiky guitar sound. In a way, it does feed into that kind of post-punk, almost kind of Gang of Four type spiky Mm. guitar sound with a bit of attitude, you know. And they look great on stage. They were really tight. They were really powerful. I think the reason Joe Strummer played a Telecaster was because Wilco Johnson played a Telecaster. And I think if you look at those early photographs of the Clash, it's even, it's a black Telecaster, I think, which is the same as Wilco Johnson's. And all, all through the city is, is a kind of, it's, a, it's almost like a proto-punk song, really. It's describing a fairly desolate urban landscape, which, you know, I should imagine Canvey Island in the mid-1970s. Let's not single out Canvey Island. That's unfair. A lot of places in the early 70s were pretty run down and rough. I remember, you know, Reading in Berkshire. There were loads of what you would call bomb sites. They weren't bomb sites, but, you know, they were just bits of rough ground in the middle of the town that were just used for car parks and things like that. And you forget how rough and ready the 1970s were, even in the affluent south. <laughs> and all through the city is just it just sums it up it's a great distillation of what life was like in uh, 1970s britain
So now we've count bishops and sometimes good guys don't wear white. This is a melding of a is it an American frontman, British musicians. Yeah, it's American frontman and uh, basically a British group, very much in the mould of the feel groups in the way. But also, the, well, good guys don't wear white, obviously, originally by the Standells. Standells, Ed Cobb. Yeah, which were one of those American garage punk bands. They were looking in that direction. And they were signed to uh, Chiswick Records with Ted Carroll. Uh, Ted Carroll used to have a, a store selling secondhand records. And uh, it attracted people like John Peel and Lemmy and Joe Strummer used to hang out. He formed Chiswick Records a little earlier, actually, than Stiff Records. I think Chiswick Records actually beat them to the punch by a few months. And uh, they reissued Brand New Cadillac by Vince Taylor. Uh, That was their first single. But they also recorded the 101ers, which was Joe Strummer's band. And of course, Joe Strummer goes on to front the Clash, and they recorded the Count Bishops, who actually went on, and they, I think they had a bit of a hit single with "I Want Candy." They certainly appeared on top of the pops, and the guitarist from the Count Bishops, who went by the name of Johnny Guitar, ended up in Doctor Feelgood after Jippy Mayo left. That was about early eighties. Feelgoods were kind of on the way down then. Johnny Guitar did a couple of albums with the Feel Goods, and I think he also ended up working with the Inmates. They had a hit single with Dirty Water, which is another one of those kind of American punky garage band things. Again, you know, we're looking at kind of chains, chains of musicians copying from one band to another. But the Cow Bishops did three or four albums, and they're, you know, they're pretty good. They're pretty good. The live album's very good. But uh, this track is, I believe, it's from their first album.
mentioned the 101ers and, and Chiswick Records and we now have the 101ers and, and let's get a bit of rocking. Obviously famous for featuring Joe Strummer, but the group were integral to the squat scene and pub rock. Yeah, they were the archetypal squat rockers, as, as were kind of Ducks Deluxe. I suppose Ducks Deluxe were a little bit before them. Ducks Deluxe were kind of squatting in the early 70s and Joe Strummer comes along a couple of years later. I think he was busking, trying to make a bit of money from busking, and then thought, well, let's get a band together. But basically, just kind of got his housemates together and said, right, we'll form a band and go out and make a bit of money. They started to get a bit of press. You know, the weekly music press picked up on them. They supported the Sex Pistols at the Nashville, the famous, I think it was a famous gig where Vivian Westwood caused a bit of trouble in the audience. Because, you know, it's Malcolm McLaren, Vivian Westwood. How are we going to get the pistols? Well, let's cause a bit of trouble. And then all the all the music papers will write about it. And I think it was the 101ers and the Sex Pistols. And the 101ers were supporting and uh, they'd done their bit. And then Vivian Westwood caused a bit of trouble. And it all got written up in their papers. But, of course, you know, it was all written about by about the Sex Pistols, the horrible punk rockers. Of course, the 101ers weren't punk rockers. They were very much a pub rocking band, you know, and obviously they're writing songs called Let's Get a Bit of Rocking. And, you know, they were doing cover versions of Back in the USSR and things like that. Oh. Which I have to say, sorry, Joe, as much as a fan, I am a big fan of Joe Strummer, but 1975, you're doing cover versions of the Beatles. And in 1976, you're singing no Beatles or no Stones, you know, and yeah, it's all rubbish in year zero. Be sure your sins will find you out, Joe. Sorry. <laughs> Before Joe passed away, he was pulling together the compilation of 101's material that did get released. That's right. Which does show actually that he must have been fond of that material because it wasn't like he was trying to whitewash it out. No, like, to be fair to him, there's a couple of biographies I've read of Joe from and The Clash, and he says his first musical memory is being at school. Yeah, he went to a posh boarding school. Yeah. And in the day room, they had one of those big old-fashioned wirelesses, and he heard a really early Rolling Stones single, like Come On or something, and he said, it just sounded fantastic had all this bass, you know, and it sounded wonderful coming out of the radio. Of course, he was a fan of all that stuff. They were all fans. Johnny Rotten, we discovered, was a fan of Kraut Rock. <laughs> Glenn Matlock was a huge Beatles fan. I mean, it was just all part of that year zero nonsense where you had to kind of pretend that everything that had gone before was absolute rubbish. And I'm sure, you know, Joe Strummer went home dug out his copy of Please Please Me and played it and uh, <laughs> quite enjoyed it. Let's look at a bit of I'm a 
track is eddie and the hot rods and get out of denver is that a bob seeger track originally it is yeah bob seeger track so eddie and the hot rods recorded get out of denver and dave edmonds also recorded get out of denver around about the same time i think eddie and the hot rods probably beat him to the punch maybe if you listen to obviously the eddie and the hot rods version it's ridiculously fast it is punk in its speed and its attitude and its approach and Eddie and the Hot Rods were one of those bands who people didn't know which camp to put them in. If you read reviews from the time, they're either described as punk or new wave. And I suppose it was because the scene was still evolving, really. And people were you know, kind of making up these definitions as they went along. And if you look back on some of these reviews now, and they'll, they'll describe something as punk, Really? I, I wouldn't call that punk, but of course they, nobody knew. Nobody knew. It was all it was all new. It was all being made up. It was all you know, someone had to define it. And Eddie and the Hot Rods sat somewhere astride the two. They weren't pub rock, they weren't punk, and they weren't new wave. They were somewhere in the middle, really, which is perhaps their downfall, maybe. I mean, because obviously their biggest hit was do anything you want to do. Is that a new wave record? Is it a punk record? <laughs> I don't know. It's a damn fine record. So uh, get out of Denver. And it also shows, you see, what we were just talking to. These bands were listening to Bob Seger. It varies from artist to artist. Bob Seger's at a different end, but you've got a country element there as well. Yeah, actually, it's just popped into my head. I think Bruce Springsteen, you know, those early Bruce Springsteen records, They were, some of those were kind of classified as being punk. In as much as the old American definition of punk, as as in garage rock bands. I mean, a, a lot of those garage rock bands like the Sonics and Count Five were written about as being punk. And then bands, you know, Iggy Pop, the Stooges, they were called punk. I remember reading an article in Let It Rock magazine described Queen as being punk because they had this kind of disdain for their audience. Oh, Queen are no more punk than, <laughs> than our Led Zeppelin. <laughs> uh, so that it, was, it was a very loose definition, I think. 
Well, you look at it today, and we've got a very clear definition of what punk is. Going back to pub rock, do you think that that is more defined now retrospectively? Yeah, definitely. Uh, because pub rock was never a genre. Pub rock was a scene. It was live music venues. Pub rock was London-centric. People did try and get a pub rock scenes going in other cities. I think Manchester and Liverpool tried to get you know, a circuit of pubs for bands to play. It didn't happen. It only happened in London. Pub rock was a circuit that bands could play. All of the bands were very diverse, as you said, everything from country rock to hard driving, garage bands, punky rock, you know, the likes of the Count Bishops and Eddie and the Hot Rods, R&B, Dr. Feelgood, Kokomo and Ace, who were kind of, you know, solely funky, that kind of thing. And then you Kilburn and the High Roads, who were just bonkers, odd, a really weird looking band, a real band of outsiders, but you could go along and be guaranteed of a really great night's entertainment. There was nothing really stylistically that held any of those pub rock bands together. It was purely that they happened to play that circuit in London. Journalists being journalists, and they could be a bit lazy. They start labelling it as pub rock. And then it becomes kind of a pejorative label. Ooh, pub rock. Ooh, no, we don't like that, do we? It's seen as being something negative. Whereas at the time, it was seen as something quite positive, I think. The title of the book ends with the birth of New Wave, so maybe it's worth talking about that, because the ripples of the musicians and the influence goes on for much of the next decade. Definitely. The, the book actually ends, I think, in December 1979. And there were a series of concerts at the Hammersmith Odeon, concerts for the people of Cambridgeshire. You've got the likes of Queen, The Who, Paul McCartney headlining, but all the support bands. You've got Ian Jury and the Blockheads, Elvis Costello and the Attractions, Rockpile, The Specials, Clash, all these kind of new wave bands, all these people who have been absolute failures when they've been in pub rock bands. They're all, you know, now playing the Hammersmith Odeon with all these big stars and this big cause, this, uh, you know, uh, concerts and can't be cheer. Elvis Costello, I mean, he went on and had a hugely successful career and still has a hugely successful career. Uh, Ian Jury's career kind of faded in the 80s, but, I mean, he went on and did acting and then there was the big comeback a few years before he died. Rockpile was hugely successful doing stadium tours, mainly as a support act in America. Graham Parker, they all influenced other bands who looked to Elvis Costello. I mean, it's a whole new way thing. You know, if you look back at like 1980 and bands like the Jags, was it Back of My Hand and Joe Jackson, um, all, all those bands. And it keeps going. You know, the, we haven't, haven't mentioned the Motors yet, who, of course, came out of uh, Ducks Deluxe. Airport, that was written uh, whilst with um, Ducks Deluxe. Oh. And Ducks Deluxe said, nah, we're not doing that. <laughs> That's not a hit single, is it? <laughs> uh, and then, of course, they go off and they, they, they form the motors and the airport's huge here. Dancing a night away, great stuff like that. Um, and I think, you know, like you say, the ripples, they're still there. There are still bands being influenced, probably more by the new wave bands than the pub rock bands. I think pub rock bands are probably a little bit more niche 
just because they didn't get the exposure, really. But um, people like Nick Lowe, still hugely popular. People are still really enjoying it. And that is the mark of quality. So in terms of getting a copy of A Howling Wind? If anyone is interested in obtaining a copy of A Howling Wind, Hard Rock and the Birth of New Wave by John Blaney, I would either pop along to your local independent bookshop and ask them to order a copy, or it's available from that well-known bookseller and seller of everything that begins with an A. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably the easiest place to get it. That's great, John. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. And let's end with Eddie and the Hot Rods, Get Out of Denver. Brilliant. And thanks for having me. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.